you've got your Bible, Romans chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 to 6, 16 to 17, and then continue with chapter 3, verse 21 to 26. Let me read it for you from the New International Version. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The, God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Verse 21 of chapter 3. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, which is of God, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the Word of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank You and we come before You grateful. Like what Sidney was saying, the Samaritan leper, God, let it be always our attitude of gratitude in our hearts that when we come before You, we realised that as we look at life that is around us, Lord, we are not over anybody. We were just as hopeless as a leper in this world of sin, O oh God. Help us today that as we come and hear your word, that we may come before you always knowing that our lives should live a life of gratitude because you redeem us and you saved us, you loosed us from the slavery of Satan so that we can be free to be called your children. Let us never forget that and remind us today through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. The postmodern thinking pushes us to think out of the box and rewrite history. But very often, it also causes us to think that history begins with us. Obviously, human history does not begin with us. And more importantly, the history of salvation 
begins and ends with the triune God, as we sang just now in the song. And I could add, in whom alone all histories and stories and narratives could ever exist. It would be unfortunate if we disregard that and not learn from history, especially God's salvation history. And here in this letter to the Romans, and we might be thinking he was, he was writing to non-Christians, but no, he wrote to those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And what did Paul write to them specifically? It was about the gospel, which he thinks is the most principal thing these Romans that he has not met must know because without which there is no salvation. And I'd like to entitle this sermon as Living for the Glory of God as we look at Romans, but the subtitle is really Living a Gospel-Centered Life as Paul wrote in his opening line. And upon this gospel is found the marks of the Protestant faith, which we should concern us in collective. If you have not yet known, collective is a Protestant church, not a Roman Catholic church. So what constitutes the living for glory of God or what marks the Protestants? It is about this, the gospel-centered call, the gospel-centered reason, and the gospel-centered purpose. Let's look at the gospel-centered call founded upon Scripture alone. Upon Scripture alone. If you want to fill up the blanks in your notes. The Protestant Reformation 500 years ago was not a revolution. It was not a revolution to overthrow the church or the leaders. No, no, no. It was none of that sort. It was called rather to, it was a call rather to come back to the gospel call, to return and reform according to the Holy Scripture, which we just read in Romans chapter 1, verse 2, if you can look at your Bible, and again in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. It is the Scripture alone that reveals to us the gospel, not any newly thought or taught revelations. Whether it was brought to us through an angel or to another self-appointed apostle, as Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 says, the Protestants believe the Scripture when the Scripture says that it is the Word of God and the very voice of God. And therefore, its authority is absolute. It's not modified somewhere or by someone. The Scripture is to rule in the church. The church, whether spiritual leadership, statements of faith, or our surrounding cultures, should be wholly subject to the authority of the Scripture alone. We cannot pass judgment to the Scripture, but the Scripture passes judgment on us. And the same standard applies to everyone, whether rich or poor, big or small. The Scripture alone and entire can bind the conscience of believers, not anything else. We can read from the writings of Paul in Romans. How did Paul know that the just will live by faith? Did he conjure up that thought by himself? Or that the gospel was revealed in the Old Testament and now fulfilled in Jesus? Very simple. The Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture verifies itself. What does that mean? What that means is the key of the Bible interpretation or the key of Bible interpretation belongs to the entire historic community of Christians. Not just certain special group of people or Apostle Peter, no. The true spiritual meaning of Scripture is its natural and literal sense interpreted straightforward by its grammar and its historical context. 
So if you know some grammar, you know how to read literature, it will be very helpful. It is not through temp- contemporary reader's cultural lens. Give you an example. If I feel dirty with sin, I cannot flip the Bible to find Jesus crucified on the cross and then I assume myself to be Jesus and I build myself a cross at home and nail myself on it. We, we find it silly, right? But many in our world today still commit interpretive suicide because they were too desperate for an immediate answer but not willing to give themselves to a long study of Scripture. My dear friends whom I love, by Scripture alone, I'm not saying that we cannot read other books other than the Scripture or the Bible. While other books may inform or reform us, only one book can transform us and conform us to the image of Christ. Self-help and masterclass coaches, prolific theologians and even counsellors and even like me, a teacher or somebody that can teach, but still, you know, these are all still incomparably far behind what the Scripture can do. The Scripture alone and entire is God's Word of truth. That's why you can trust. And it's also God's Word of power that can change us and transform us, including the difficult parts. And that is why even books like Leviticus and Revelation and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we ought to preach and teach and study entirely. Just like the Berean Christians we see in the book of Acts, examining the Scripture daily with all eagerness to verify preachings that they hear. In a world that loves to deconstruct absolute truth into relativity and reconstruct relativity into many so-called truths, what other foundation has God given to His church as the only rule of faith and of practice except the Scripture alone from which we hear the Gospel. So it is a return to Scripture alone that our minds can be renewed through the Spirit of God because the inspired Scripture is the only ordinary and primary means the Spirit uses to sanctify us. And there's no need to be nervous that more Scripture means less Spirit or otherwise. The Bible is very clear that the Spirit and the Word is one. And the Spirit delights in converting the human minds to the Word. Only a return to Scripture alone that the church can recover her call, her defining call. And that is the first mark of the Protestants. The challenge for us today is not whether you listen to preaching or not, but what are you hearing? Are people hearing what their itching ears want or like to hear like Paul says in 2 Timothy, or the sound doctrine, the sound teaching that we must all hear that Paul charged Timothy with. Don't forget, because even the devil knows the Scripture. So knowing the Bible is not enough, but fully subject under the Scripture in trusting and obeying it. Ask myself, ask yourself, is my conscience captive to the very words of God? Is the Scripture the compass that leads me through storms in life? Is the Scripture the mirror by which I dress myself, the rule by which I work, the counsellor that resolves my doubts and fears? Secondly, a gospel-centred reason fulfilled in Christ alone. In Christ alone. You can fill that up. And let me spend some time on this point. 
You see, what was the Protestant protesting about? What was the gospel-centered reason that became the watershed moment? It was about what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 to 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, what is the gospel? Paul explained it in his opening lines in verse 2 onwards, if you are still in the Scripture. It is about the Father promising and sending the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, born in human flesh as the seed of David, who was to die and raise from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you see the three triune God working there. Now, so through Christ alone, the grace of the triune God is given for sinners to have faith to be saved. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel, not anything else. This is the gospel. But the gospel is not only the power of God. The Bible says here it is also a demonstration of the righteousness of God. Now, pay attention to this word here, that this righteousness of God revealed here. What is it? It is not talking about God's attribute of righteousness, you know. He show off His righteousness to us. The gospel is called gospel or good news, not because we need to know that God is righteous, the gospel is good news because God is now offering sinners His righteousness. It's not God showing us His righteousness because if He show us His righteousness, then all of us, we are condemned because we are never going to be he, as righteous as Him. And that kind of differences, that kind of discrepancy is just going to put us in the place that we should go to, the unrighteous people go to, which is perish. But the gospel is the good news because God now is offering His righteousness to sinners freely. You say, but how is this possible? This is not fair. As a matter of fact, God is infinitely righteous and we are far, far unrighteous. You can read that in Romans chapter 1, the whole chapter. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says that in our human nature, we are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. What happens, let me ask you, what happens when you try to tickle a dead man's feet? What happens if you put a bottle of life-saving serum or vaccine beside a corpse? It won't respond, no matter how good the vaccine is. Here, the Protestants insist that a sinner is unable to provide or even take hold of the saving remedy. Not only are they undeserving, they are hostile rebels against God with bad hearts and bad records. We act out. You know, even though we are slaves to sin and Satan, we act out against God to rebel against God. They may call themselves a Christian, even a serving Christian, whatever, but their life produces fruit of unholiness, greed, looks exactly like the world, love to be like the world, and as the Bible says, you know, dead to God but alive to sin. That's not a Christian. We were once like that. I was once like that. And God is not obligated to be kind or gracious to us. The Bible says that we only deserve hell. But in accord with God's nature, God showers an entire undeserved love upon us. And then our lives are changed forever. This is God's sovereign grace provided only in the person and the work of Christ alone. And that is why grace is not only unmerited favour, it is a free favour that is offered to the demerited, the undeserving, those who deserve to die. 
It is by grace alone that God chooses, calls, and causes the sinner to be born again or made alive. The same word. And by His Spirit and His Word, He creates faith in that sinner so that he can have the saving faith to believe in Christ unto salvation. We contributed nothing. Sovereign grace crushes our pride. He shames us. It humbles us. Because we love to be the one who saves or being saved a bit. God saved me a bit. I improve a little bit. But not being saved as a dead corpse. We want to be active in, say, in the saving process and not passive. But can you really save yourself? Think about how many times you return to your addiction or obsession, even though you call yourself a Christian. Think about how many fastings and positive confessions and the little vows that you make to God. God, I will never do this again. If you do this, God, please. You know, I would, but, and then fell back to your desire. You really think you have graduated from the gospel just by your years of serving in church or by your qualifications or by your contributions? No, we are not God. Jesus did not become a robber in order to save robbers. Our desire only shows that we are sinners. But God knows how to break our rebellion and make us friends of this grand doctrine of grace alone. The year was 1515. An Augustinian monk and theologian, Martin Luther, was trying to prepare a lecture from the book of Romans. He said, my situation was that although I feel myself as a perfect monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I have no confidence whatsoever that my character would satisfy him. And night and day, I pondered. Until he read Romans chapter 1, verse 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Friends, the just shall live by faith, as quoted from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. That faith, there is never your own faith. It was given by God from first to last, from beginning to ending, from the day you believe to the day you meet God. That faith was an alien faith created in you by an alien grace because God gave it to you not because of your merit, but because of God's sovereign grace. His steadfastness, as we have just learned, His chesed, so that the righteousness of God through Christ alone is now given to you. The detail of what and how it happened was further explained if you run your finger down to chapter 3, verse 21 to 25. But now, apart from the law of the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between the Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And there you get the word, justification, which is the verb for righteous. To declare someone righteous is to justify, not righteatize. Okay, there's no such word. Justify someone. It is a legal word in a courtroom to count or to declare someone as just or right when the rightful due is paid. Paul says, because of the redemption accomplished by Christ alone, sinners are declared righteous or justified freely by grace alone, through faith alone. Listen, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. So everyone, without exception, including myself, is a sinner and can only be justified in this manner. There's no other way. You say, but how? So easy, man. Huh? Easy for us. 
but not for Christ. Look again in verse 25. In a more literal translation, in the ESV, it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. The word propitiation appeared four times in the New Testament. It is the same word as the piece of covering called the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant on, in the Old Testament, where God said to His people, there on top of it, I will meet with you in Exodus 25. In the same manner, Christ is our mercy seat, our covering. God meets us at the cross by means of propitiation. J.I. Packer says that propitiation does not only describe the covering or putting away or rubbing out of sin so that it no longer constitutes a barrier to a friendly fellowship between man and God, but also the pacifying, the turning away of the wrath of God thereby. So the picture of God being okay and smiling to sinful humans who are dead in sin is not okay to God. If you think the God of the Old Testament is angry with sin, God has not changed in the New Testament. He's not being compromising with sin, no. Read Romans chapter 1, verse 18, if you think I made it up. God's wrath is poured out not because He's moody or nasty, but because He's holy. His holiness cannot be contradicted by His love. Love that is absent of holiness is universalism. A God who doesn't show anger Moral, towards moral evil, but can only love is unjust and a false God. So God's love is holy love. God's kindness is holy kindness. God's generosity is holy generosity. But the good news is, in the second part of verse 25, God patiently tolerated the sin committed beforehand so that His righteousness is completely demonstrated on the cross through the death of Christ. As Christ, the only mediator in His humanity, He obeyed the law actively, perfectly satisfies all the justice of God as on our behalf, as our substitution. God taking humanity on Himself and turning away from His own wrath. Can you imagine that? And in His divine nature, the blood of Jesus is then able to wash away our sins effectively. Christ alone is our perfect Lamb of God. Jehovah Jireh, on the mount of the God, the atonement was provided. Therefore, most importantly, our sins are imputed on Jesus as we believe in Him, while His righteousness is imputed on us. And that is how we see the we in Him and He in me language. How the Bible describes as the vine and the branch, the bride and the bridegroom, the union with Christ. And you say, how does this happen? Well, when the Holy Spirit applies salvation on us, that's why it is a spiritual union. This is how the righteousness of God is demonstrated. J.I. Becker calls this the heart of the gospel. The moment Martin Luther understood the meaning of the just shall live by faith, he said, I was born again at that moment. That the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through it. This, my friend, is what the Protestants believe and hold fast to as the message, the meaning, the reason, the heart of the gospel, without which no one can be born again or can be saved. And lastly, let's look at Romans chapter 3, verse 26, the purpose of the whole matter. He, God, did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time, so as to be just 
and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Thirdly, the gospel-centered purpose, fitted for God's glory alone. You can write that down. Fitted for God's glory alone. Some people may ask, well, before Jesus came, was God unconcerned with moral issues and sin? Of course he was concerned. He was so concerned that he does not and cannot pardon sinner except on the basis of justice done in retribution or an atonement that involves a substitute or a propitiation as we have read. And that is why with Jesus, we have now the Redeemer. And again, God is just all along and He is also the justifier of those who trust in Jesus. And in the process of redemption, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit was never working separately. The whole of redemption and justification was the work of the triune God, as we have sang just now. I mean, who could have thought of such a glorious plan, wise plan, except the triune God? And therefore, in verse 26, if you look with me at the Scripture again, the demonstration of righteousness is also the righteousness of the triune God so that all worship and glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit alone forever and ever. My friends, this is the biggest purpose of the Protestant faith, that man's chief end is for the glory of God alone because of all that Scripture alone has revealed, which in the very heart is justification by faith alone, through sovereign grace alone, that can be only mediated in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. Do you get it now? It is not your occupation that makes you godly or not. It is, how many, it is not how many years of experience or rankings or assets accumulated that determines your purpose in life. It is not restlessly searching for the next formula or strategy that works, that can stabilize your life, your organization, your family, or whatever that you may be, calling it as or steering it as your vehicle in life. It is the glory of God alone that will bring you the greatest meaning and purpose in life. Because in Christ alone, and no other master or saviour or solution that can provide for you, an alien righteousness, not of your own, an alien faith, not of your own faith. An alien grace, not of your own fabricating. It is only by this faith, which the Scripture alone has said, that the just shall live and find life from faith to faith, from saving faith to daily sanctifying faith, through preserving faith until you persevere, until the end, to meet God face to face. And that is the gospel-centered purpose of the Protestant faith and all that our breath and our life owe to. And let me end with this. I can have some music if you want. The year was 1517. The, year, the day was 31st of October. Exactly 504 years ago, the now born-again Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses on Castle, door, on Castle Church door in Wittenberg in Germany. Now, we often see that in Hollywood, right? It looks very, very gung-ho and all that. The reason he did this was actually to call for a theological debate among the scholars and the clergies of the church, which is a very common practice. That's how they call each other to come. They don't have Facebook all those times. To discuss about the selling of indulgence, which is a paper that is, have the seal with the Pope that provides forgiveness of sins with every participation in a fundraising campaign for St. Peter's Basilica or St. Peter's Church. The message of Luther was simply this. Repentance cannot be replaced by penance, which means performing sacred duty 
or acts of honouring. Little did Luther know his 95 Theses was taken down by a printer who published the document to everywhere in Germany. Of course, long story short, the Pope was alarmed and under attack. Fast forward to 1521, in exactly 500 years ago, in, German, in a German town called Worms, an imperial diet or court session was summoned. And Luther was to appear for a trial before the Emperor Charles VI, the ambassador of Pope from Rome, the bishops was there, the archbishop was there, the cardinals, the princes, and all of them. And not forgetting the chief prosecutor by the name of Eck was to drill Luther with all his books piling up on a side table, whether he would recant or to be condemned as teaching heresy. He says, Martin, how can you assume you are the only one to understand the sense of Scripture? Would you put your judgment above that of so many famous men and Pope and claim that you know more than they all? And are these your books? Luther said, yes. And will you recant? Luther said, for which books? Acts said, never mind. Just say, I recant. Revoco. And made it firm one. The room went quiet. While Luther was at crunch time, and he mumbled and said, Can you give me 24 hours? Unlike the fearless big shot Luther that Hollywood tried to portray, Luther was seen faltering that instant. He spent a whole night writing a prayer. And let me read it for you in modern English. Oh God, Almighty God, everlasting, how dreadful is the world. Behold how its mouth opens to swallow me up. And how small is my faith in you. Oh, the weakness of the flesh and the power of Satan. If I am to depend upon any strength in this world, all is over. The funeral bell has been struck. Sentence have gone forth. Oh God, oh God, oh you, my God, help me against all the wisdom of this world. Do this, I plead with you. Please do this by your own mighty power, for the work is not mine, but yours. I have no business here. I have nothing to contend for these great men of the world. I would gladly pass my days in happiness and peace. But the cause is yours, and it is righteous and everlasting. O oh Lord, help me. O oh, faithful and unchangeable God, I do not lean upon men, otherwise it would be in vain. Whatever is of man is torturing. Whatever proceeds from man must fail. My God, my God, do you not hear? My God, are you not living? No, you cannot die. You just but hide yourself. You have chosen me for this work. I know it. Therefore, O oh God, accomplish your own will and do not forsake me for the sake of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, my defence, my buckler, my stronghold. And after a moment of silent struggle, he continued, Lord, where are you? My God, where are you? Come, I pray. I'm ready. Behold, I'm prepared to lay down my life for your truth, suffering like a lamb, for the cause is holy. It is your cause. I will not let you go. No, nor yet for all eternity. And though the world should be thronged with devils and this body which is the work of your hands should be cast forth, trodden underfoot, cut in pieces, consumed to ashes, my soul is yours. Yes, I have your own word to assure me of it. My soul belongs to you and will abide with you forever. Amen. Oh God, 
send help. Amen. The next day, he was brought once again into the assembly hall and the question came back to him. Martin Luther, will you recant? Luther says, since you asked me to answer you plainly, I will do so. Unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture or by evidence reason, I cannot recant. For my conscience is held captive by the word of God. And to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God, help me. The rest of the story, I trust you can Google from the internet and read it on your own. But that watershed marks a significant moment for the Protestant Reformation. That is the historical Christian faith and all that the church desires to build rests on no other authority except the Scripture alone. The Scripture alone. Because it is what our conscience is held captive by, not by words of men. Scripture alone unites. Scripture alone revives. Scripture alone sustains. Secondly, that salvation is accomplished by the redemption of Christ alone, which the Spirit of Christ to the preaching of the Word of Christ applies to all undeserving sinners who by sovereign grace alone were called to be born again. It is you contribute, it is not you contribute some faith and God gives some. It is fully God because you were dead in sin. If there is any part that we can play in salvation, then Jesus doesn't have to come as a fully human. But Jesus came so that through this person and his work, a propitiation is put out by God, to God, a sacrificial atonement. His blood spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. His body pierced on behalf of us so that everyone who believes in Him by faith alone, which the Scripture with the Spirit creates in us, this faith that God gives to us, we are freely justified and declared righteous. And now, in union with Christ, we may live for the glory of God alone. Our whole life worships God. The same union with Christ. The Holy Spirit uses the Word to conform us into more and more like Christ through every temptation, through every trials, through every difficult moments that you've gone through preserving us so that we may persevere through every trials to the very end. Bearing witness with our conscience, telling us you belong to God. Look at your life. That's how you produce the fruit of the Spirit. Look at you. I'm with you. And that we belong to Christ so that we die to our flesh and we are made alive to live for God's glory until the day we meet Him face to face. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we thank You. We thank You, God. We are grateful. We have nothing to say when we come to the cross, God. We see, the more we see Your grace manifested, the brighter Your grace manifests itself through the Scripture the more we see how dark we are and how undeserving we are. Nobody likes to be in that kind of situation where we feel like a dumb. But as the scriptures say, that's our true condition. Nobody likes to go through that motion again and again and 
Why am I still struggling with this sin? Why am I still struggling with that habit? Why am I still having this obsession? Why am I still not win off? God, when? When can I be win off from my flesh? Nobody likes that. But God, that's exactly that good news is for us. That it is by grace alone. As the scripture says, by faith alone, in Christ alone, that you have saved us, you have redeemed us, you have loosened us from the slavery of sin and Satan so that now our conscience is held captive by the scripture alone, not by the fear of men. Oh God, so often, oh God, we look at our lives and we look at your word, your word as a mirror to our lives. We see how, how wrong we are. Lord, help us. Wound us if it's possible. Blow, take a blow on our pride. Help us to know, God, that you have saved us, that we are your servant. And you have come to show us how to live. You're not just a good man, not just a good teacher that we need a little bit on Sunday morning so that we can boost ourselves a little bit of confidence to go back to our workplace, to go back wherever we are and then continue to live our life as if nothing happened on the cross. No, God, help us to be like the Samaritan leper coming back, begging God, thank you, thank you. God, help us.